It's March 4th, 2021, and we're talking LEC and data science with Fanatic Coach Tolkien. This is the True Sight Podcast. Welcome to the True Sight Podcast by Oracle's Elixir, your source for in-depth analytical coverage of professional League of Legends and the rest of the esports world. I'm Tim Magic Sevenhusen. Our guest today is Gary Tolki Miare, coach of Fnatic in the LEC. Tolki, welcome very much to the show. Sorry that my French accent is terrible, even though I'm Canadian. How have you been? I've been doing fine. I moved from uh, Tokyo to Berlin a few months back now to work in the LEC. Uh, before that, I was working with uh, T1 remotely and Splice, where we made a, a top eight. And uh, now I've, I've done Fnatic, so, you know, I'm doing uh, the reverse team since you were there six years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, jump uh, from... Maybe I'll follow your footsteps. Yeah, from different leagues, different places, going all over the place. I think you've got a pretty storied background in the scene that people may not know a lot about. You've filled a lot of different roles in, in being kind of visible in different places and sometimes invisible in other places. So, you know, I think... It'd be great to just give people a little bit more detail on, you know, you just gave the very quick rundown on kind of different roles you've held. But I think even going further back than that, like your Twitter tag is Tolkien Casts. Like, where did yes. you come from in the scene? And <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm a boomer. I'm 31. So in esports shares, it's about 70. And I've been around oh, a lot of scenes. But uh, regarding League of Legends in particular, I started casting League of Legends in season two. I casted the world in French with the o gaming TV crew, uh, Chips Noir. I was there like in 2013, I met Oslot at Tales of the Lanes. Uh, so it, it goes a long time ago back in French, in the French scene. Then I kind of gave up on it for a few years. I worked uh, on Magic the Gathering with, uh, with Arms of the Coast for a few years. Went back to Fighting Games, which is my first uh, community. And I moved to Japan uh, five years ago in, 20, uh, in 2016, and I wanted to go back to League of Legends because I saw it was a booming market, esports in Japan. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to create something uh, in the Japanese scene. So I created a team there. We completely failed. We didn't qualify for LJL, the Japanese league. So after two years, we closed the team, Hokuto Esports. But great logo, great branding, except we kind of sucked. And then I was uh, picked up by Splice about six months later, uh, by Duke in particular, who's also French. Uh, he saw my background because I have a background in engineering and machine learning. I have an MSc in a computer vision. And so Duke was, you know, valuing the skill set a lot and wanted to apply some of the skills to League of Legends. So I became data analyst at Splice, where I was very much technically oriented. Like all I did the whole year was Python, SQL, setting up servers, parsers, databases. Uh, for the team, I really wanted to have a technical, analytical approach to League of Legends. We made top eight at Worlds. The one who beat us were T1, and uh, they liked my job. So I joined them uh, after they lost in the semifinals. And uh, I became the first uh, European member of staff for Korean team, where we got a very good spring. We won LCK spring, so I can say I have an LCK title. And if I win LEC as well, I think I will be the second one after Huni to do it. And... Um, LT1, I continued doing more of the same. I went deeper in the machine learning aspect of it. I really cleaned up a lot of my work. Also open sourced a lot of it. So some of the people who listen to this podcast must have used some of the Python packages I've released over the past few yep. years. I've done an in-house bot for the NA uh, teams during the off season since I had a few days off. 
And I've also, you know, done other projects in data science for T1. But I wanted to go into coaching. You know, two years as an analyst, you're like, yeah, I have good ideas, but what if I was the one coaching? So I got in touch with teams. Fnatic was also very interested by uh, my past experiences out of esports in particular. And that's how we assembled a tag team with Yamato of two coaches. Technically, we have the same coach title, even though Yamato is the head coach in official capacity, of course. Uh, he's, of course, much more experienced with players with, you know, working individually with the human aspect of League of Legends. Well, you know, I'm the guy who is looking at data, who's doing uh, more the analytical approach to the game, the number-based approach to the game. And so we try to play off uh, each other's strength. You know, we don't stifle each other. We each try to do what we're good at. We try, you know, to complete each other. And um, we have a very good dynamic, I think. So I really like the, the new path that my career has taken. Yeah. It's a long with, one. <laughs> with... With that kind of background, I think people can understand pretty quickly why you and I have, you know, orbited each other quite a bit over the past few years and talked a lot, shared ideas, shared data sources and pieces of code now and then. Uh, and yeah, it's obviously we, we've, I think we approach a lot of the same problems and sometimes from different angles and, and it's been really interesting to, to bounce things off each other. Uh, as you, you know, we're more on the, more on the team side of things. I'm a little more on the outside and third party kind of stuff. But, one of the uh, things I didn't say, by the way, regarding third party, is that I'm the one, I'm the one who did uh, some of the backend for Leakpedia as well. I helped them a lot. And their parser is uh, something I wrote in partnership, uh, an official partnership with uh, the Leakpedia team. So I also try you know, yeah. to help out of the team and the third party environment around League of Legends. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit rare to find somebody who is deep within the teams themselves, but also contributing on the community level and providing resources for people. And like you said, you've got some open source repos on, on GitHub that people can use. You've you've contributed a lot to Gamepedia's architecture. So uh, it's it's been, you know, it's great to have you on to talk about that. And I think we'll talk about all the different aspects of this a little bit as we go. But, um, you know, I think one place that I'd uh, love to jump in with is kind of some of that third party and the kind of community oriented stuff, and especially about the in-house matchmaking tool, because you mentioned this is something you were kind of on your time off. And it's a, it's always a big topic, especially over the past few months in North America about, you know, players having their, their practice environment. And, you know, if they want to play with a, with a better ping, they have to go on the tournament realm and they set up these in-house circuits and so on. And, and a lot of that is driven by the ability to, uh, you know, queue up in discord uh, be match made with you know ten players and actually run a game that way. So, what was your what was your motivation for building this tool and this bot, and and how did that kind of come to be? It was uh, Inero, uh, Inero, I'm not sure how it's supposed to be pronounced. Yeah. Who was uh, looking for somebody to write about? He posted about it on Twitter. I was like, I can help. I'm uh, contractually assigned to T1, so I cannot accept any money. I asked to make a donation to a charity in my name instead. Oh, nice. And I spent uh, two days during a weekend working on the bot. So the first version of the bot, which is still you know, what it's roughly based on, uh, was written in two days and it was working. They used it for about a month before it dropped in usage. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of, of summer, it started picking back up again. Uh, Kedrol from the LEC uh, asked me if we could set up a server in Europe for ERLs and LEC players to use the bot to play in-houses. So I did it, I refreshed the bot, I redid the whole backend structure of the bot to use Postgres in instead of SQLite, be more robust, you know, be a real professional uh, thing. And uh, that's how you know it came into being what it is today, where I think it's a, it's a pretty good tool to use. 
But yeah, the, one of the reasons why I picked up in the first place was because I wanted to learn new skills. Yeah. I picked up SQLite by doing it. I picked up Discord bots. I had never done one before, so I wanted to learn. Uh, so, you know, that's why I went there. I, I like to learn new things by doing open source projects. I feel like it's, it's always a good thing. People show you, you know, when you did something wrong, when it's open source. <laughs> so what you're saying is that you're being selfish and just want to learn new skills and it had nothing to do with just wanting to help out exactly. North America. Exactly. <laughs> I never. Just I mean, I could help them all, all they want, you know, it would still beat them, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go already. Uh, how have you felt about the way, you know, or the amount that it's, you mentioned it was used for a month at the first, uh, off the bat and it fell off a little bit. I think this off season, it got, you know, there was a very high profile in-house circuit with core JJ leading a lot of that kind of stuff. Have you kind of monitored the way it's being used? Is there any like kind of personal pride in how much it is or isn't being used? I'm in the servers. I'm still the person handling all the backends. Uh, so I actually have direct access to the database of the bots. So I kind of like it. <laughs> you know, just to know what's happening. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't been used for a few months. I'm, all, of course, very happy when it's in use, but it didn't really pick up. You know, people still prefer to play solo queue with the public rank rather than just, you know, playing in-houses. And even though the bot does offer duo queue, even though the bot does offer playing on the tournament realm and private queues, you know, it's still not good enough, it seems so. Yeah, I, I think it does make some sense that it would be used a lot more in the off-season rather than in-season where now everybody's on their teams and you're in your little bubbles. You might not want to reveal as much. Uh, so, you know, I, I understand. Hopefully it'll be... I'd say if as long as it does get used in the off-seasons relatively consistently, that would still be a win from my perspective. But, you know, we'll see how it's going to happen, out. honestly. <laughs> People forget about it, you know, in three months. So you need fine. somebody to pick it up and run with it, like JJ did, like Cage And the big streams when Captain Flowers was also casting yeah. games. It was, uh, it was helping a lot. Giving it visibility yeah. helps. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, that, that's been a, a, a cool project that I think a lot of us have benefited from. And hopefully, I think the players themselves have benefited from that a lot as well. Uh, we'll see how that how that moves forward. Um, but what you're doing right now, so that was something you wrote a while ago and you maintained it a little bit. But what you're doing right now, obviously, coaching Fnatic in partnership with Yamato. Like you said, you guys have kind of the the both the coach title internally, but the LEC requires that one person to specify as the head coach for, you know, paperwork reasons, basically. Uh, what is kind of the, the dynamic of the way you, you, you reference it a little bit, you and Yamato, Yamato working a little more kind of with the, the person-to-person side of it, you're a little more on the analytical side of it. What does that look like in, in, in practice in a given day of, of, uh, of preparation? Uh, in practice, I mean, most of the days for professional teams are scrim days, so players come, you eat together, you play five games of scrims, you give feedback, and then you go home or you split up. Uh, so, you know, Yamato and I are both there, but sometimes, you know, I'll spend the whole day looking at data, doing scouting reports, uh, watching specific points uh, about our opponents because, you know, I have lots of data, I have timestamps I want to go and check in-game. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, he's the one actually leading the scrims, so that's a dynamic that happens often. Uh, he's more involved, you know, in the day-to-day scrims than I am. And then I'll come back, you know, uh, I'll look back at the replays. I set up an automated way, of course, of recording the scrims, the draft, all that to make sure I didn't have to do it by hand. Yeah. And um, so that was also some of the work in the first few weeks. So usually, you know, I, I'm kind of flying around, uh, doing whatever I feel like is the highest priority at a given point, while Yamato is more focused, you know, on uh, really the daily training, uh, leading the draft during the scrims and all that. And, you know, I jump in after the draft, for example, uh, I'll talk with Yamato for five minutes about the draft and, you know, uh, we'll talk about what we want to experiment in the next one and a few ideas we had at the end of the draft, which happens often. Um, so yeah, you know, it's a 
it's a fluid dynamic with Yamato being more of the hands-on coach, always there with the players. While I'm more on and off, sometimes I have, I, I want to write some code, I want to write some big SQL queries, I want to, you know, maintain my parser because it crashed, which happens about every two months because Riot crashes things. Changes something. So, so yeah, uh, I, I cannot be as involved in the day-to-day -day as Yamato, so he's taking the lead. But when needed, I'll take it too. When sometimes he cannot, you know, do meeting with the players, screen reviews, I'll be the one watching, I'll be the one handling it, and we trust each other to be able, you know, to cover for this. What is the... When you're working with a team that has so much experience, right? Like every player on your team, you got Whippo, Selfmade, Niski... Uh, upset, Hill is saying, these are all, you know, very experienced and high quality players. I imagine you're not in there coaching fine points of micro with them. What are the kind of the things that, that you tend to focus on with a team like this? What are the most important things that you feel you need to, to manage as a coach when you've got that type of a roster? Honestly, the human interactions are pretty important, you know, making sure people communicate well, uh, are happy playing together, that the champion pools fit what their teammates want to play. Because you, you cannot, you know, be saying, I want to play, uh, I don't know, Velko's mid. And that's it. You know, it has an impact on your whole team. Whatever you want to play will impact the rest of the team and the champion pools needed by your teammates to be able to play with you. So we have to balance that a lot. And, you know, when there is discussion, I wouldn't say conflict, but, you know, when there is discussion and disagreement regarding how to play the game, Yamato and I, we, we, st we step up, you know, we're part of the discussion. We try to, to weigh the pros and cons to you know, analyze it and make the players come to a fruitful conclusion, which is needed very often. Yeah. But uh, like, we're not here you know, to be gods amongst men and uh, teach them the ways. That's not what we do. We're more like here to mediate and give them information, bring them information that they might need. And it's been working pretty well. Now you know, they, they know they can come to me when they need some random data that nobody else has access to. And they know in five minutes, I'll be writing a query. And I can tell them, you know, yeah, when Kai Sai is uh, more than 500 goals ahead at 15 minutes against Zaya, usually she wins, you know, stuff like this. Yeah. <laughs> Over 50 games in LPL, you know, I'll have the data, I'll check. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, so that's, that's a useful that's thing to be able to have for sure. Uh, you know, I'm sure in a different team environment with a different set of players, maybe you look at Mad Lions last year or something like that, you might need more of that authoritative coach who's going to say, like, here is the plan and here's how you fit into that plan and off we go, like, follow me. But, you know, with, hmm. with the, the guys you're working with, again, like being more of a, of a facilitator, what I imagine Grabs has done a lot of at G2 over the past few years, right? Like, let's just make sure everybody's friends and that everybody is communicating well and that when there is a disagreement, you're helping them kind of massage them into the, into the same place together, right? But I think even with the rookies, you know, you have to push them to take responsibilities and be hmm. the ones, you know, leading their improvement. If you hold them by the hand the whole time, you'll arrive at the end of the year and be... You, you'll need to babysit them every single game and it doesn't really yeah. work. At some point you have to let players fly from their own and that's why as a coach, you know, it's called a support staff for a reason. We're not a driving staff, we're a support staff. We're here to support the players. We're here to, you, you, we know we're here to prop them up. We're not here yeah. to bring them up, we're here to push them from behind. It's a, it's a different image in my mind. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and how does that, you know, obviously you're in a coach role now and with T1 you're in more of an analyst or a data analyst role, but how, how has that changed, you know, how, how has that been different with Fnatic compared to the kind of work and the type of input you had at T1 and, the, and maybe even the culture that you were integrated into? 
Being there on the day-to-day -day in person does change a lot since I was working remotely at T1. This means now the player know me personally and know to, they can ask me, they know to count on me, they know what I can answer, they know what kind of reports I do and I present them myself directly to the players so I get a lot of feedback directly from them. And that was not really the case at T1 because there was always, you know, an intermediary, which was the rest of the coaching staff between the players. But instead, my reports, they would get translated by Hajinson, who's now uh, the analyst for T1. It would get sent to the coaches that would then present it to the players. Now, you know, there is no filter. Uh, every single day, I'm interacting directly with the players. I'm the one uh, presenting them data, information, graphs, uh, because I do a lot of uh, graphs, visualiz data visualization. And so... I get a lot more feedback about what they're receptive to. I have to adapt a lot more to find things that resonate with them. You know, numbers doesn't work. I tried to teach players what the standard deviation was. They were <laughs> lost. You know, they only understand average. You know, you show them 10 numbers. The only number they will understand is the average. Standard deviation, they have no clue what it means, even if you explain. So, you know, the, I, adapt, I adapt. That's the big difference. You know, this year I've had to adapt uh, my style and I've had to work closer to the players and really uh, change my ways of presenting information to make sure it sticks to the players uh, directly. Yeah, it's all about knowing your audience, right? Like in knowing how to get yeah. an idea, how to take some very complex ideas, because I'm sure behind those numbers you present, there are some, sometimes some very big, complex things going on under the hood. Yeah, there but is you're showing machine them the learning, the there is lots of stuff behind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but so nobody can trust it. Machine learning works anyway, so we'll <laughs> just go for that. But uh, I'm joking, of course. But um, when it comes to that and the idea of like presenting numbers or presenting visualizations to the players to understand, or even to other coaches, depending on whether you're in a T1 situation or, or something else like that, what are some of your, your favorite things that you like to convey? What are some of the ones that are just like personal, like, oh, I really love when I get to use this metric or, or this, you know, visualization? I can't really tell because nobody else uses them and they're not really publicly accessible, Fair so enough. it would be hard. Uh, but uh, one of the metrics I use a lot is uh, uh, a metric that I created that looks like a win rate, but takes into account the recency of games, takes into account the skills discrepancy between teams, and helps you very quickly identify outliers much quicker than you would with a standard win rate. So that's the metric I use the most. Outside of this, I think it's getting pretty popular, so I can talk about it, but I really like splitting, uh, splitting stats between wins and losses, because for a professional team, what matters is knowing what makes a team win and what makes a team lose, you know, not the average. And those are two very different patterns that happen with the team. And there are teams that have widely different performances in wins and losses, in which lanes they play for, in how they move around the map and those patterns are incredibly easy to spot. And that's the thing I really like to do, you know. Almost every time I look at a metric, I look at, uh, you know, let's say, uh, positional data and everything, I mm -hmm. will split it between wins and losses to try and see if uh, the patterns are different and usually they are. Yeah, it, it's one of the things that like when I when I relaunched Oracle's Elixir, uh, you know, a, a while ago and, and built kind of the 2.0 version of the site, one of the things that was really important to me, now this is going to be driven live off a database was being able to, to have the users live filter stuff and having a win and loss filter is one of the things that that I think gets used quite a bit on the site. Um, especially, you know, d uh, fantasy players love to be able to combine, you know, what what is a, a player or a team do in wins versus what do they do in losses? Because then you go in, you say, we think they're going to win this matchup, therefore, you know, how many points they're going to earn, but for also for coaching and for other things as well. I think one of the things that I've always found interesting to think about with win-loss filtering is that 
in a theoretical sense, you actually want to be able to say, look at the metrics and then say, do they lead to a win or do they lead to a loss rather than reversing the causality. But in league, the, you know, there are a lot of metrics that are win biased, right? Like if you're winning, therefore these numbers tend to go up and you end up the game winning. So there are, there are actually reasons where the causality can be, they win, therefore the numbers are this. Which is a really, I mean, it's part of the whole snowball effect, all these kinds of things that you can go really deep on League of Legends analysis. But it's one that League I think of a lot Legends of people, is a very, yeah. yeah, it's a very specific game because when you win early, you win late. You know, when you score a basket in the first five minutes, you're more likely yeah. to score another basket in the next five minutes, yeah. which makes absolutely no sense, honestly. Which is why yeah. all the best teams <laughs> in the world for the last 10 years have been teams that could consistently create early game leads. Yeah, like sometimes the game went late, but usually the best teams in the world have been able to create an early gate, uh, early game lead and capitalize off of it and finish the games quickly. And it's become more and more pronounced in the last few years because the overall level is getting better, which is why in loss your numbers will look quietly different because usually you get, you're getting smashed in losses in League of Legends. Yeah. And so it's important to make the distinction. Where, where are people getting smashed when they lose? Yeah, no, it's it, definitely interesting to look at. Uh, speaking of winning and losing, Fnatic right now, Seven wins, six losses. You know, you're one game above 500. You're fifth place in the LAC standings. I think when people look at the roster you have, the expectations they might have had, this is not where they would have thought the team would be at this point. But it's there's well, more than just the wins and losses. Let's be honest. Uh, I I had pretty high expectations. Uh, I I was you know if I had done a power rankings in LAC, I would have said Fnatic two, uh, behind G two. But you know here we are. Do you feel like the seven and six record reflects the actual level of play you guys have put out there? Uh, yeah, I guess because we are seven and six. So what can I say? It does reflect how we play out there, but uh, of course, I feel like we're title contenders. I don't feel like regular season matters that much in LEC. As long as you're top four at the end of the split, you know you play the same number of best of five in the end. And whether, whether you're fourth or third doesn't change anything because the first seed decides who they play between third and fourth. So it really doesn't change much. Even if you get fifth or sixth, it's really minimal. You just play one more best of five. And if you want to win the title, you have to beat everybody in the end. So I'm not really concerned. And we did consciously you know, try out stuff. We did consciously do drafts that we knew were risky and not optimal if we wanted to maximize every single game's win rate because we think that's wrong. In the long term, if you want to be the best team, uh, you cannot just be playing the simple stuff. You like we could have picked uh, Oriana, Zaya, week one and do <laughs> like Excel. Yeah. We're playing them tomorrow, so I'm gonna trash talk them a little bit. You know, we could have done <laughs> done it like them. You know, and play scaling while people are getting used to playing together. And uh, you know, it works. We pick a few easy wins, but we don't really care about that. We're not here for the easy wins. I think we can very realistically make it to playoffs, which is still our goal. And I don't think we'll miss playoffs. And if you don't miss playoffs. The only thing that matters is how good you are uh, when it starts. And this, I think, will be very high. Yeah. I, I, I always do find it an interesting conversation to say, you know, how does a team's actual quality of performance map to their win-loss record? Uh, it's something that, that I personally, from the outside, especially being a kind of a content creator and all of that. So, you know, in the episode of Run It I did this week, I, I was looking at kind of the, the number two to number six teams in the LCS. And one of the points I made about Dignitas, especially coming after 
after week three for anyone who hasn't watched that video i looked at their they were tied for second place with win loss record but when i looked at some of their advanced gold metrics some of my you know asking about your favorite metrics a couple of my favorite metrics are gold spent percentage difference which takes the uh, total amount of gold spent by each team at the end of the game and runs a percentage difference on them to basically say the margin of victory and also a goal percent rating which is at any given point in the game as the game goes on how much of the game's gold do you hold so are you playing from behind or or ahead and by how much uh and dignitas were ranked you know i think sixth and seventh in those two metrics despite being tied for second in the standing so i thought i don't know they're you know they're not as good as their record looks when i look at your your metrics right now fanatic fifth place in win loss but third in those two gold metrics which is one that says to me okay fanatic maybe deserve one or two more wins that they've gotten they're not a fifth place team right so indicators that you guys are playing better and in in traditional sports terms got some bad bounces maybe or something you know that kind of thing uh, we through. We entered it a little bit. You know, you can go at it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the exactly. words, you know, dedicated to it in the League of Legends community. Yeah. <laughs> we did int it. There is a lot of custom League of Legends terminology for doing bad things, <laughs> throwing, <laughs> inting, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, we did it all. We did fun. it all. <laughs> but, you know, I think with the level of experience you guys have and the amount of playmakers in your team, that's always something you can expect a little bit. You're going to go out there and try some stuff, especially in the regular something season. Something we're good at is having a lot of kills and death in every single of our games. <laughs> Before 10 minutes, we're like the bloodiest team in LEC. And, you know, it's a, it's a side we want to lean into. We think it's the right one. And that's... So actually, something I didn't really talk about uh, about anywhere else is when we built the roster, when we recruited our mid laner and new bot laner, we, I specifically looked at stats uh, regarding their early game performance, regarding uh, their activity on the map in the first 10 to 15 minutes, and how impactful they were early. And that's why, uh, for example, we did get Niski over all the other options we had. Because in NA, he was very, very, very good at finding early plays with a blabber. But also, you know, by himself, he had a very deep champion pool. He played some Yasuo Gragas last year. He played pretty much everything that was open. And he played them in a very active way. And when yes. you have Bwipo, Hilisang, self-made on your team, you know, you want other players that lean into it and that want to be part of the fiesta. And so we, recruit, we recruited a few more clowns to, to go with it. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to talk a little more about Niski, you know, partly because, you know, he's coming from the LCS back to the LEC, and, you know, the, we, we do tend to have a lot of NA content on here. And he's a player that I've always celebrated a lot because of exactly the things you're describing. You know, when, when you're leading into this and saying, the type of player we want is this, you go, ah, that's Niski, right? Somebody who's <laughs> very, very active on the map, gets out of his lane, willing to do a lot of things, you know, even sacrifice some of his own, uh, his own waves in the mid lane. And I think you can see that in what he's uh, been doing this year with you guys already. You know, he's, his laning stats aren't good. Like he's usually down in gold and experience, but he's out there on the map making stuff happen. And he's also playing a really deep champion pool, nine different champions in 13 games so far. What has it been like integrating him into the team with, with these players that you have built around him? Uh, it's been very easy, honestly. Uh, Niski is a very plug and play kind of player. You know, he just uh, fits right in. Easily, you don't have to do much. Uh, he's a good uh, presence. He he's able to hold a conversation on both sides. He's able to spot his own mistakes and to fix them really fast. He's able to learn new champions really fast, and he will grind 15 solo queue games and you know be able to play it on stage in uh, in a few days. So you know it it really didn't uh, require anything from us or from the rest of the team to integrate Niski in the team. And also, I knew about that before hiring him because. I used to work at Splice, where Niski right. had just left when I arrived. So I heard the other coaches talk about Niski and how he was, and I knew he would be a perfect fit for the team. Like he, he fits right in. He's uh, 
there's really not much to say about it. You know, we didn't have to work extra hard about it. We just had to let him get used to play with the other players, let him get used to play with self-made in particular, you know. Mm-hmm. Mid-jungle is very important to work together. Yeah. And uh, once we got that done, uh, well, we got pretty pretty good results. Did you have any concerns coming into this that Niski would struggle to like bring himself back up to just the head-to-head mid lane level? Because that was something I think in the community a lot, especially from probably European fans who just have a very negative opinion of North America and the level of play in the LCS. They say, oh, Niski, and he wasn't even the best player, the best mid laner in the LCS, and he's going to come over here and he's going to be garbage. Like, Is that a perspective that you guys even like talked through at all? Uh, the thing is, uh, it's really overvalued. You know, the best players are the players who know when to give up on their lane and go affect the rest of the map. Like, when you can go lane is nice, but first it won't always work. You will have games that you need to win where you have a bad matchup and you will get pushed in. And you have to know, you know, when it's okay to drop two waves under your tower to TP in another lane to create a lead and win the game. I think that's a more important skill to have and a harder one to learn, you know, uh, than, you know, having good hands. And Niski doesn't have bad hands in any way. Like, when he played against Caps... He didn't have any issue in lane. He's playing the matchups at very, very high level. And he got back you know, to a US server, which helps a lot in terms of grinding solo queue. Sure. Uh, there's a, a good training environment, so I never had any doubts regarding that. I think he was pretty underrated in his time, yeah. both in EU and in NA. Uh, he was always uh, top three, top four mid laner, I think, in the leagues he played in. And he was bringing you know, this uh, X factor in being able to do stuff that other mid laners wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm I right there with you on the underrated uh, side of this that, you know, I, I've been kind of beating the drum for Niski in his entire time in the LCS and, and saying how he was undervalued. And, you know, he was the best part of Cloud9's summer playoff run that was not a good playoff run. Like, they, they kind of bombed out at the end of that season, but he was the one that was trying to do, trying to bring them across the finish line when the rest of the team was really struggling. So uh, I, I'm enjoying kind of seeing what he can do in the LC, LEC level and that he's kind of keeping up and, and contributing there. Uh, I'd love to talk about, as you mentioned, the the mid-jungle partnership, because Niski and Selfmade, I think the people who were excited about this move, including myself, looked at Niski Selfmade and said, here's the LEC version of the Niski Blabber partnership. You know, a guy, a jungler who loves to get a ton of resources, loves to carry, and Niski's a really good fit for that. How how have you seen that partnership grow over the last couple of months? I feel like, you know, it's a balance because Selfmade is also actually great on playing low resources jungler. You know, before last year, he was playing Rek'Sai, Gragas, uh, Sejuani. You know, it was the meta. He will play the meta, uh, whatever's good. And if, you know, there is a lot of farm in the jungle and we need to help our jungler farm faster, uh, I think, you know, they are able to work together well. Niski is able to pressure mid well enough that Selfmade can get double crabs if he has, you know, a clearing speed advantage. Uh, Niski, you know, can make it work, and yeah, I think the synergy come from moving better on the map together, which took time, because Niski, in terms of uh, macro play, had taken a bit too many NA habits, so once we fixed that, you know, it went uh, way better, you know, but moving with the jungler going for dives at four minutes, you know, if the bot lane is under tower at four minutes and your jungler clear top to bot, you don't uh, invade golems. You you dive them. That's what we do in Europe. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> he kind of have lost, you know, the edge, the the killing edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the five man bot lane tower dive. That you know, uh, one of my, you one should of my, not be scared. <laughs> one of my favorite plays. No. <laughs> Three man dive, yes. Four man dive, sure. 
no, five no is a bit too much, but four is the right number. <laughs> if, you have a, if you can push mid and yeah. your bot lane has a push advantage, you know you should pressure the dive because if they stay, you kill them, and if they don't, you push them off. Yeah. And uh, when when they don't respect, you have to go there. <laughs> you have to make yourself get respected. So yeah, for sure. I, I'm kidding a little bit, of course, but uh, yeah, like there was some uh, adjustment from uh, Niski playing with self-made Bipo Hilly and being on the same page in terms of macro, in terms of the plays they want to go for, what they think is a good play, because Hilly Sang in particular sees play that other people don't. But usually he's right. Uh, when you look at the replay, it's like I knew they had you know two seconds cooldown on the, this spell and uh, 10 seconds on the flash. So I did flash under tower with 200 HP, but if we all went in, they were all dead. And <laughs> after, we're like, yeah, of course. Yeah, it makes sense. In the heat of the moment, though, some other players did not follow. Yeah. And uh, it's sometimes yeah, you you know, something we had to get used to and make sure we all see the same place. We all share the information needed to go on the same place, to take the same decisions. And uh, that's how we got Niska on board. Are there uh, any players or any teams uh, in, in the rest of the league who have really caught your attention uh, in, in, in you know, coming back into the LAC that, that have surprised you about uh, what's been happening in this region? Coming back into the LEC, so that's only Broken Blade, right? And Tret and Treats. No, so I mean, with thing. yourself coming back to the LEC, not <laughs> okay, the players, okay. but but you coming back in, you know, who outside of your own team, who's really caught your eye this year? Uh, I think the bot laner of uh, this team called the G Two is pretty good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kidding. Uh, but honestly, I don't really, I don't really look at things that way. I feel like you know, all players are humans, and if they do something, you can do it as well. And that's how we're approaching the Fnatic. We have no doubt, you know, if our opponents can make a champion work, we should be able to make it work too. And this way, when we see good plays, and there are very a lot of good players in the LEC, but there is no one that stands out to me. Because when I see good things, I'm like, yeah, we can we can do this too. We we can make it yeah. work. Uh, and so in the end, I don't put any player, you know, on a pedestal. But Treats is going uh, very well for SK. Unfortunately, we're going to beat them on Saturday. So he look a bit less shiny after this. <laughs> yeah, it, it, who are you? Who are you all playing this week? You're playing Excel. You're playing SK. SK this is just yes. a two game weekend, isn't it? Yeah, and then yes. next week, next week is the super week to wrap off the season. You have yes, two weeks and left, we finish right? the season by playing Rogue. So if we beat them, you know it's gonna be it's gonna feel yeah. good going into playoffs. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but five zero going into playoffs would be you know perfect. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, get that momentum. Uh, talk, speaking of you know, what you mentioned about when you know when another team or another player is able to pull something off, you guys feel you can do it too. I think that that does kind of tie into the idea of you know reckless leaving an upset coming in and kind of taking over that role. What is yeah, he's what not is, playing the same? That's no, no, sure. not playing the same way, but you know in in that same position. But I think mm -hmm. you know reckless. One of the things about him has always been his flexibility. He can take all the resources or he can take no resources at all and still perform really well. Upset, I think you know. Typically, you'd look at him and say he's a guy who wants to get a lot of resources. And statistically, he is getting a lot of resources for you guys. He's getting a lot in his lane. He's getting a lot of the farm later and doing a lot of the, a lot of the damage, although other people on the team are contributing a lot of damage well, as well. Not really. We are literally in the LEC, the most balanced team in a gold destination past 15 minutes. So I wouldn't say he's getting more farm uh, past 15 minutes. We're just all getting more farm because we sure. have better macro. If you look at gold per minutes, our top laner and jungle and mid have higher numbers. Uh, but in terms of percentage... Um, like, if I'm correctly, mid, jungle, top, and bot are around 21% of a gold generation after 15 minutes. So, yeah. I think yeah, we're and, pretty bad team. We don't put all our eggs in the upset basket. No, when you look at a CS, CS share post 15 minutes, yeah. upset is ranked fourth among that's the true, that's true. 
so he's behind. Crown Shot is number one. <laughs> Way ahead number one in six games. He's got over 35% of the CS, which is like double lift numbers. That's uh, all. You have Jessica down we, at we get the 32%. kills to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jessica and Comp both around 32%. And then you have Upset just under 30%. So another p- pretty big drop down. So that is, you know, that is relatively balanced. But he he does seem to be the one getting the real leads out of lane. And Niski is, you know, dropping some. And, and Whippo, I think, is going pretty even, if I remember correctly here. Uh, Whippo never goes even. He goes no, hard ahead or hard <laughs> behind. Yeah. <laughs> That's where, you know, looking at standard deviation is what matters. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Or just you, you need to look at it number. out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because he, he uh, has a, a decent average. He's almost as zero average, you no, know, perfectly clean. But <laughs> deviation doesn't play the same things. No, it doesn't. So upset being a player who you know, relative to the rest of the league, he does tend to get quite a bit of farm still and quite a bit of resources. Does it seem like he's still under any pressure or, or feeling the sense of kind of replacing Reckless at this point, or is that all in the past and he's you know not in his I mind anymore? Either, so it's not even in the past. <laughs> yeah, uh, there was never any pressure of replacing Reckless because. Uh, we're just here to do something else. We feel like the way Fnatic played in the past was pretty good, but we can do better. And that includes playing differently around the bot lane. So, you know, it was never about replacing Reckless. It was always about playing another way. And so in this way, there was never any particular pressure for him, you know, uh, to, to perform uh, like his uh, past competitor. But the thing is, regarding Reckless, you say he's good when he doesn't get resources, and when he does, he can play both roles. I'm not sure that's entirely true. Like, he's had great teammates in the past, but if you look at his uh, highest successes, uh, he did well when he was uh, handed a lot of resources, uh, like in spring 2019, in all of 2018. That's when he shone the brightest. Like, when he's not the one getting the attention from his team, he's a good player, he's doing his job, but his team is not winning as much and they're not, you know, getting titles. So he did adapt his gameplay. But I'm not sure if it was the right one, so we'll see in playoffs. Uh, I think, if anything, I would be curious to see G2 playing completely around snowballing bots and playing super aggressively there. Mm-hmm. And I'd be curious to see where it goes. But I'm not sure if that's a play style they want to, to look at. Yeah, I think uh, kind of the lower resource rec- uh, reckless is a little further in the past, right? When you go a little a little further back into his career and, and what he did, you know, three, four, five years ago. So, you know, in, in more recent days, he's definitely been a higher resource player for sure and, and delivered very well on that, getting a, a ton of CS and <laughs> and so on. Uh, but yeah, no, I think um, with with upset on your team, I think you guys, you know, brought in a really good player and he's been he's definitely been contributing. Uh and so, I, you know, you guys have a, a really fascinating dynamic. Do you ever have to, with, with all the playmakers on your team, do you ever worry about reining them in a little bit? Like, you've mentioned that you, you do encourage the proactivity and, and you know... If anything, we want more. Lot, but, <laughs> it's not yeah. enough yet. Okay. There are still plays that we're not going for that would work. Like, if you want to succeed at Worlds, you have to be a team uh, that can see the high-level plays, the, the hard plays to execute, and pulls them off instantly without any hesitation. And you have to work on this, and there will be some misfires, of course. But no, uh, I think the term playmakers is not, it's a bit like weak side player, you know? Like, it, it's just another term to, to separate the good and the bad players. Like, there is no good player that's not a playmaker. All the top players of all times are playmakers, and none of the best players of all time that I remember were weak side players. You know, it's a, it's a euphemism to say strong player and bad player in the end. Those are crucial, critical skills you need in all five roles. 
uh, to be able to win games. Like even Ruler uh, in Samsung, you know, it's a flash ultimate on Varus that won a game. It was not him standing in the back line and waiting for things to happen. Like if you're a good player, when you see an aggressive play, you will take it and you will make it work. And I think at yeah. Fnatic, we're uh, very uh, aggressive about it. <laughs> so yeah. I think there, sometimes there's we a, have to rein it back. There is a little bit of a difference to me between the idea of, you know, playmaker versus, you know, non-playmaker versus, and then the mm -hmm. idea of a weak side, which is to me specifically <laughs> a term that gets used much too broadly. But for me, it's, it's mm -hmm. a lot more about, especially in the early game and, you know, where the, where the pressure on the map is, right. And whether you're pulling waves to your turret more, whether you're pushing up more, whether you've got your jungle hiring, that kind of stuff. I think that term does get, it has been used much too broadly for sure. So, uh, but did you realize if you want more kills, you guys are 0.2 kills per minute higher than even the highest team in the LPL. So if you want more than that in your games, not enough yet. <laughs> we 1.5 combined kills per minute. That's what we're, we're aiming for this season. Good to yeah, know. We also have, so the thing is we also have short games at 30 minutes on average. Uh, it's so overall, you know, the metric is not really truthful yeah. to what's happening. And also, we just uh, try to punish as hard as we can. And we think, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be fruitful in the long run. And sometimes we did do poor plays and we're learning. We're trying sure. to stop going for those poor plays when we did make mistakes. And maybe in the future, we'll be able, able you know, to get just as many kills without uh, dying as much. Because in terms of death per minutes, I think we're also the highest by yeah. pretty decent uh, So margin. I was referencing <laughs> combined kills per minute. In that yeah, okay. So yeah. Kills, kills and deaths. deaths. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> I don't know those are our deaths, so makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all been fascinating, I think, hearing about kind of your, your take on your team and the way you guys are playing, the way you want to approach things. I'd like to to pull back a little bit to speaking a little more on the technical side. I think, you know, having you on, on here as, as someone who has done a, done a lot in the analytics space, does a lot of coding, you know, uh, manages a lot of different databases and drawing from different data sources. Um, I think one of the things that's always really interesting to hear is some of the, the differences in what types of stats or what kinds of approaches to analysis are useful in a pro team context compared to what might be common or useful or interesting for fans, for broadcast, uh, for any kind of content creation. What is the big divide that you've seen in those, uh, those different applications? The big divide is that we don't have the same goal. Um, broadcast, fans... Uh, betters, you know, they try to know who's the best team is, and I really couldn't care less. Uh, what I need to know is how you beat any team in the world. <laughs> what I need to know is what is the best way of playing League of Legends. And that's not the same thing as finding out what the best team is and who's going to win a specific matchup. The only thing I care about is the weaknesses of each team's, how much you can abuse them, and how is the best way to secure wins which is very different, I think, as a goal, which means I will look to very different numbers uh, than other people working in this space. So I guess one way to summarize that would be that it's about the way teams play, not about how well teams play. That's, uh, that's the spirit. Because if, even if a team is the best in the world, my only job is to find a way to beat them. You know, hmm. I can know they're better. I can look at all the metrics and see they're better. I really don't care as long as I find one way to beat them. And that's what happened in... 2019 was Spice. Uh, I think it's a story, you know, that's not really told enough. Uh, 2019 Spice didn't have a good uh, social media branding, but they did take games of FPX, SKT, G2 Esports, and Fnatic in one year, despite having five players who afterwards did not, you know, uh, shine to, you know, the higher hates of uh, Le Competitive League of Legends. 
But when all five were together, they were winning a lot because we were very good at finding and pinpointing the weaknesses of our opponents and uh, pushing hard there instead you know, of uh, letting them play <laughs> what worked for them. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of a two-edged sword in the sense of, you know, what is what are the, the strengths and weaknesses of the team you're up against? But also, on the other hand, like you said, the best way to play League of Legends, which would look more, I'm sure, you know, understanding the metagame, right? Like understanding which champions are the right ones to, to use right now, what kind of matchups you can use, uh, other kinds of details like that. How much time do you spend looking into, um, whether it's drawing solo queue data or stuff from around the pro scene, looking into metagame-related analysis? Pretty little since I've automated 90% of my job. Uh, everything is automated. I have automatic visualizations. I have a Discord bot. I can type a comment and ask for a visual a tree map visualization of current professional trends and solo trends. Uh, I have everything already automated, so I don't spend that much time on it. Maybe like 15 minutes a day, I will look daily at the data, at what's happening in the world, and I make sure you know I keep the pulse. But I don't have to go much deeper because if anything pops up that I didn't notice, it will be very, very visible to me. I've made sure my whole workflow is adapted. So anything new, I'll be the first one to catch it. I'm 100% sure of that. Do you do you draw that? So that, that's a lot of the solo queue kind of stuff. So is that mostly looking at like champion related trends or is it stuff within like champion play styles? And like how, how deep do you drill with that kind of thing? In solo queue, I parse every single EUS and Korean Master Plus game, which is, I think, the, the highest level solo queue uh, games you can have access to because uh, Chinese server is very hard to get data from. But uh, in those, I, uh, I look at uh, outliers in terms of uh, one-tricks builds. You know, If I have uh, a random player playing, I don't know, you know, any jungle with an 80% win rate other, uh, over 30 games building you know, straight breaker, it will pop up in the way I do my analysis because it's a build that has a high deviation from others and is winning a lot. And that's the kind of thing I pay attention to. Uh, as soon as something that's out of the ordinary pops up, something that only one or two players have noticed among the best soloquy players in the world, then I take notice and I, uh, I try it myself usually on my soloquy accounts. I ruin a few games for, uh, for the sake of learning and then... Uh, I can give a uh, useful feedback because I I still used to be a challenger player, so you know, I still have those hands a little bit. I want to try, and then uh, I, I give the information to my players once I have a better formed uh, opinion of those things. And it's all about builds, champions, uh, and stuff like this. Do you find the players are, are pretty receptive to that kind of input, or, or do they tend to hold on more to their own ideas? It varies a lot from player to player. Uh, for example, self-made doesn't really believe in the numbers for him. You know, it's some dark magic, so uh, it's a bit harder. Blipu, on the other hand, you know, I could tell him, man, I have ten uh, Kai setup games into Nar, and they are all wins. You know, you want to try it back? I'm down. <laughs> Get me a scream. I'll play it. You know, uh, so it really depends from player to player. Some players are much more receptive to uh, wanting to go deep in very specific counters, very specific builds, and trying out new ways. Uh, to approach in their role, their own role, while all the players want you know, to, to be playing the meta and they're happy with it and want to play it at the highest level. I don't think that's a problem. You know, we, we don't need to have five fancy picks every game. One or two is enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean from, a, from a serious perspective, the more variance you introduce into the equation, the harder it is to isolate the effects of any one of those really unique changes. So, I mean, it, 
as much fun as it would be, you know, throwing in a completely, <laughs> completely different five man. We, we did go for a very fancy draft uh, against my Lions, for example. In the first match against them, we had Eblin Jungle. I think we're still the only ones in the world who have played it this split. Uh, Rally mid, you know, we're going in. And we threw it in the mid game with uh, one team five that was poorly executed, most importantly. But, you know, we were winning that game for most of it. And it was a very, very off rhythm uh, kind of composition. I think no other team in LEC at the moment would dare draft this. But, you know, we thought it was very good in the situation and we could pull it out. We could pull it out. So sometimes we, we do go a bit too deep. So we try to stop a little bit, be a bit more meta. Yeah, well, I, and I think by the time you hit playoffs, then uh, the things you've learned from trying those different things hopefully become very useful. And then you can we'll have decide. very spicy things for playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> if you think regular season was spicy, you're in for a, a wild ride. Fair enough. Yeah, we'll we'll be watching. Uh, so I, I'd love to to wrap up a little bit with some uh, some questions that listeners have submitted, and I think um, there's one from I am not the NSA that I think we've a, a addressed a little bit of it. So I'm gonna. I'm going to adjust or pivot the question just a little bit, but um, when it comes to things like like being a coach and giving input or advice on things like itemization, rune builds, champion picks, how much of your input on that do you think comes from your experience as a player, your uh, role as somebody who's got this background in analytics and can come at it from a very numerical approach? Like, How do you balance uh, the types of inputs that you have into the recommendations you make to the players? I think you need a very, very deep understanding of League of Legends itself, of how the game works, of how to play it at a high level, because even just an items build is determined by how you want to play a champion, what are his strength, what are his play patterns. You know, you can read the numbers, but if you don't understand how it's going to work out in a high level environment, you know, it's not going to work. Like, there are some champions that look strong in solo queue, but for example, don't translate way well to competitive, because in competitive, uh, top tier players are able to play around. Uh, some of their strengths. It was the case, for example, for Malphite for a long time until he was buffed a lot. And at high level, you know, you cannot land your ultimate on a target with flash or blink. It just doesn't exist in a land setting. But uh, there are lots of examples like this where you have to understand the play pattern and uh, what makes a champion work. For item builds, for example, uh, we talked about gangplank item builds with Wipo back in November, and I know how gangplank works and. I offered three builds, which have become the three meta builds since then, because I understood how to play the champion, I understood which met, which stat he needed, what was his play pattern, how hard you could go into damage, how hard you needed survivability and stuff like this. And uh, it panned out really well, uh, because we, we've known what would be his meta uh, build three months earlier than anybody else. So I think a lot of understanding of League of Legends itself, being able to play that like master level at least, is pretty important, because it's not always reflected in the numbers. If optimizing item builds in particular requires you to properly understand uh, how the game is played. How much do you think it it is important for a coach or an analyst or somebody who's giving those types of input be, to be able to play at that master plus level? Because I think we've we've seen examples in the past. You know, there there are some more famous ones of someone like way back when with Monte Cristo. You know, he was he was doing uh, you know this high level LCK color commentary, but he I don't think he was ever more than a silver player. And you have other coaches who just don't even play at all. Do you think that mm -hmm. that really holds them back from being able to give this level of input, or are there other ways that you could approach it and get that insight? I mean, no, I don't think you can be a coach and not be able to play the game. There's no top-tier sports coach in any sport 
that has not been a top tier player for some time or a professional player at least. I'm not saying you need to be top five challenger, but master level is top 2000 in any server. So worldwide, there are literally tens of thousands of players above this level. So if you cannot reach this level, it's, uh, it sounds pretty doomed because it means uh, you won't be able to understand the whole spectrum of what goes into being a good player. Maybe not being able to execute it is something. I know uh, there are coaches with handicaps, for example, and I think they would be able to reach master, master tier if they were able you know, to play it to the fullest extent. In this kind of situations, I think it can work out. But overall, being at a decent level and being able to play the game at a decent level at some point in your life sounds pretty important to me. Yeah, uh, interesting to get your take on that, and uh, you know, I think it's, it's Jose Mourinho was a professional uh, football player. Sorry, I was looking at the chats, <laughs> and somebody said uh, Jose Mourinho, the maybe most famous football coach of all time. He was a professional player. He started his career by being a professional player. He was at that uh, master plus level. Yeah, no, as I was saying, interesting to get your opinion on that. I think it's a topic that has has come up in in waves now and then over time. Um, always interesting to get different takes on it. So, uh, another question we had was from, um, from Warring Kingdoms. Do you, as, as a data analyst in league space, do you think it's important to have education or, or an academic background of that to have some kind of a degree or, or is that something that is, what kind of value does that have? Honestly, I don't know because I have one, I have multiple degrees actually. And it did help me a lot score a job in this field in the first place. That's because I had those degrees that I was given a chance. But those degrees in themselves, you know, they didn't teach me much that I used in my job. Uh, I got my degrees almost 10 years ago. My MSc is computer vision. I was using a scale invariant feature transform, which is a completely obsolete method of doing computer vision. I wrote my whole master's thesis on it and nobody cares anymore. So. I have a degree, but it didn't, you know, help me in anything with my job. What helped me was playing the game uh, pretty well. It was being able to learn uh, really fast how to develop, learn, you know, industry standards in terms of uh, code quality. And this is not things I learned uh, during the time I got my degree. So I don't feel like you should need a degree to to get to a data analy uh, analyst spot in the League of Legends field, but you have to be able to learn how to code, how to use databases, how to use data very fast, and be able to understand the meaning uh, behind this information. Yeah, I think I think that's true in a lot of education contexts. Uh, you know, you can get the degree, and often the degree is just proof that hey, I've put the time in, and I've got some backing. But it's not actually the stuff you learned at school most of the time that you're going to actually yeah. go into the workplace and use, right? It's a lot more about developing practical skills, learning how to learn. It's a cliche, but you know, learning how to go out and discover something and build a new uh, tool set. And I mean, that's going all the way back to what you said about building the in-house spot. You built this, and you picked up some new technical skills from it, and that's not something that the degree helped you with, but you know, oh, being able to have that background gave you some foundation of how yeah, to I was using on. a MATLAB and Java in my studies, <laughs> you know, that's a very boomer developing yeah. uh, programming languages that nobody uses anymore. I had to learn everything from scratch for Python two years ago. I had never, never launched any script in Python until two years ago. And I just picked it up for my job, but I was able to learn fast, which is what helped me. Yeah. And Python is a good one for that, for what it's worth. It's a, it's a relatively accessible language for that kind of thing, but yeah, well, this has been really fascinating, and I appreciate the time you've put in uh, to sharing your insights, sharing your experiences. Uh, what is the best way for people to follow your work over the rest of the season and, and uh, in the future? Uh, on Twitter, uh, TalkyCasts, and my GitHub. I still, you know, 
write code very often, try to open source as much as I can. Uh, and that's about it. I usually post on Twitter. I will try to stream again on Twitch at some point. But when I'm in Japan, I'm in my, I, with my wife and enjoying life in Japan, so I end up not streaming if I'm also working. Uh, it's a bit hard to balance out both. But while I'm alone in Germany, I might stream a little bit more. It's also Twitch TV slash TalkyCast. One of the very first Twitch partners. I've been a partner for a decade now. <laughs> wow. A decade. There are not many people who've been Twitch partners for almost 10 years. No, that's right. With an average of 30 viewers now, I think, <laughs> stream. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, well, we'll look for that and see if, that, uh, if you're able to get the time for that in the future. So thank you again very much for, for joining. You can support the TrueSight podcast at patreon.com slash oracleselixir. You can subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, as well as anchor.fm slash TrueSight. And make sure you check out the Oracles Elixir Discord server, where we talk a lot of League of Legends esports and other games. We talk about data science and some of the technical topics that Tolkien and I touched on today, and a lot of other things. Links for all of those, as well as Tolkien's uh, uh, social media, will be in the show notes. This has been the TrueSight podcast with Gary Tolkien Mialare. And I'm Tim Sevenusen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.